0: All right, thank you everybody. Welcome back to the Cybercast, Cyware's podcast series where we talk to some of the foremost security leaders in the industry. My esteemed guest today is Dr. Alex Jemplosky, CEO and founder of Security Scorecard. Alex, thanks so much for being with us today. Tom, it's a pleasure to be with you. It's been a while and I'm really happy to talk to you again. It's it's certainly been a while. Um, for our for our uh, subscribers out there and our listeners, I'm just going to give you a quick little bio. Nothing totally formal. You tell me what I left out, and then we'll dig into some of the questions today. Let's do it. All right. So for our listeners, Alex Yampolsky is the CEO and founder of Security Scorecard. He's a globally recognized cybersecurity innovator, leader, and expert across multiple areas of cybersecurity. His vision with Security Scorecard is really to create a new language for cybersecurity by enabling people and organizations to work collaboratively across the enterprise and with external parties to build a more secure overall business ecosystem. Prior to Security Scorecard, you've had a number of different, you've had a number of different really interesting leadership roles, like at Gilt Group, um, where you manage, you've managed, you've been an operational. You've, been, you've served in an operational capacity, which is awesome. So you understand technology, um, actually very similarly to some other CEOs who are starting to kind of come from that operational background, Alex. So um, I think it's definitely really interesting uh, in terms of the things that you've done prior to Security Scorecard. And actually, Scorecard has, is really one of the larger scaling cybersecurity companies on the market today. Would you not agree with that? I would agree with that. Yeah, 2013 was, was when you guys started, right? So we started actually towards uh, the beginning
1: of 2014. We were incubating it, um, but we officially started doing it full-time in 2014. And seven, uh, seven and a half years later, we're now between uh, three to 400 people uh, every week. We're hiring uh, lots of people and uh, adding lots of customers. So it's been a very fun ride.
0: Oh, that's awesome! Like super growth, definitely impressive. Let's start with a little bit of your background because you aren't really like the the typical profile of today's CEO at a technology company. And you've got, you know, you don't come you don't come from the U.S. You came here. You came here as a child. You've got a very interesting background. I'd love for you to kind of give the listeners an idea of, you know, when you came here and the things you started to do that have led you to you know, basically building a, a highly successful business today?
1: Sure. So um, I immigrated from Russia to U.S. when I was 14. I was fascinated with cybersecurity ever since I was a kid. A friend of mine brought me a video game called Prince of Persia, um, and he infected it with a virus. And I got fascinated. How do those computer viruses work? Uh, I wanted to learn how to build my own type of a virus. So I developed my passion for cybersecurity early on. When we immigrated to New York, that was a big culture shock. I've not really spoken much English and we were very poor. The first week uh, that we arrived to New York, me and my dad would walk the streets of Brooklyn and pick up furniture in a garbage dump because we couldn't afford anything and we had nowhere to sit on. Uh, But that really taught me Um, the importance of perseverance, the importance of being hungry to succeed and prove yourself. So I, uh, you know, I ended up going to NYU for my undergraduate, and then I finished it, and I wanted to learn more about cybersecurity, so I ended up doing my PhD in uh, cryptography at Yale. I spent four and a half years there, uh, graduated, uh, did a lot of interest in research on elliptical curve cryptography and distributed computing, but I really wanted to make things come to life. I've wanted to build products which are used by real customers. So I ended up working at Oracle, Microsoft, Goldman Sachs, leading teams responsible for authentication and entitlement for the entire firm. And then I got a call uh, from a company called uh, Guild Group. It was an e-commerce startup um, in New York. There were just a few hundred people at the time. Um, by the time I left, there were several thousand people. So it was really kind of hyper growth, which teaches you a lot of good things and bad things. Uh, and at Guild Group was actually the time when the idea for Security Scorecut came to mind. Um, we were investing into a lot of different tools, intrusion detection systems, vulnerability scanners. We hired consultants to come and perform security audits of our infrastructure on site. And one day we were integrating with a fraud prevention solution. We looked at a copy of their vulnerability report. Um, It looked fantastic. So we signed a contract, started integrating with our systems. And at the last minute, we discovered unencrypted credit card data belonging to other customers. And to me, that was a big oh crap moment where I realized I could lose my job as a CISO due to circumstances outside of my control. And that was the impetus to really uh, start thinking about how we could build security scorecard where you could come up with a score, just like a credit score, but use it to measure any company in the world could be your own, could be a third party company. Um, and that was kind of the Genesis of the idea that Sam, who I met at Guild and who became my business partner and I, uh, started incubating back in uh, the middle of 2013, and then officially launched it in 2014.
0: Really interesting and, and really cool too, because it's uh, I, I find so many times in cybersecurity, Alex, that things that, you're, things that might be right in front of you, you're not like a lot of folks just don't really see right away. Like you have to sort of cut through the clutter and really kind of see that forest through the trees to be able to start to look at things very holistically. And it's definitely an interesting way to kind of to 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 look at that from a vulnerability standpoint and then kind of bring this this business to life. So when you when you think about that, and we'll dig a little bit more into security scorecard in a sec, but like when you think about that, obviously you you came to America, you've got a great success story. What do you think has motivated you if you think about the trajectory of security scorecard from from 2015 to 2021, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? What do you you think has really motivated you to sort of become the leader and and maybe even evolve to a certain extent as you've started to build this business?
1: Well, I think think with the motivation, it's either you have it or you don't, right? Uh, You can teach all kinds of skills, But I think that um, I've always felt a sense of hunger to prove myself. Um, I came from humble beginnings, so I always wanted, I wanted to prove myself. I wanted to prove to other people that I could do it. But also the mission always motivates me. We felt that the mission is exciting. We felt that the cybersecurity industry is flying completely in the dark. People are investing into all kinds of solutions, all kinds of tools, and um, yet they're not using any KPIs to quantify whether they actually get in more secure or less secure. And so the mission of creating a new language of making the world safer by giving people access to scorecards that we provide was what drove me. And the type of a leader, of course, you, you have to be when the company is two people versus 20 people versus you know 320 people today, is a different kind of a leader so i um, i mean i like to tell my team that i have to literally like fire myself every single year and then reinvent myself for what type of a leader i have to become when you are 10 people or 20 people in size your hands are everywhere you're involved in development and marketing and sales and communication is easy because you're all sitting in the same room and you you just learn through osmosis. I might be a sales guy, I drop the phone and say, crap, I lost a deal. And Tom, you might be in the marketing team, you turn around and say, well, what do you need to win a deal? And and so we communicate just because of proximity. When the company is hundreds of people, you need to be very deliberate about the communication channels you create. So I had to grow and scale as a leader, surround myself with the right team, create the cultural foundation for the team to operate, and carry the values um, and set a very clear strategy for the company about where we are and where we're going uh, next. So it's definitely uh, challenging. You have to reinvent yourself, but that's what really uh, allows the companies to succeed and scale. Um, Not doing anything, not growing, that's easy. Change is always hard and it's always uncomfortable. And very few people like to be uncomfortable. So you have to get yourself out of a comfort zone all the time
0: yeah it's impo- it's important because the there isn't like a blueprint for every single cybersecurity startup or any startup for that matter alex it's like it's not a straight line that you follow you have to be willing to kind of navigate those waters back and forth might have some up weeks might have some down weeks but certainly it's a it's a very interesting ride i mean i i'm i'm at my seventh startup and it's definitely um, it's interesting every day. I think that's what makes it interesting because you're solving real problems, right? And you're also looking at it. You're looking at the the set of challenges that seem to evolve and change. And certainly in our in our industry, they're getting more and more serious and more and more critical. You know, just look at the latest look at the latest spate of of, of hacks between uh, Colonial Pipeline and. Um, I think that, uh, let's see, I mean, the ransomware the ransomware attacks are just completely spiraling, spiraling out of control right now. And the pandemic only
1: accelerated the digital shift and the transformation. You know, as Darwin said, it's not the strongest, it's not the smartest that win and survive, but it's the most adaptable to change. Mm-hmm. And the same applies to executives. The same applies to companies, both established and startups. The quickest to adapt and evolve are the ones who succeed.
0: Very true. I, I, in fact, not a more true statement that I've heard at least at least this week. I, I, it's excellent. I think that uh, let's dig in a little bit into security scorecards. So you guys have grown. You guys are scaling. You guys are doing some really interesting things in the cybersecurity risk ratings market give our listeners who might be a little bit who might be unfamiliar possibly I, i don't know how that's possible now if they're in the cyber market but give our listeners a little bit of an idea about security scorecard and you know i mean from my standpoint you know i used to i used to compete with you so you know i'm you know i i have some knowledge of this market but love to hear kind of your high level on this market and kind of what security scorecard is doing differently
1: so i think the um market of being able to quantify risk is a very important market. And uh, according to Gartner, they believe that security ratings will be as important as credit ratings uh, as we look into the future. So we're used by over 1,400 paying customers um, and over 20,000 companies on our platform who claim their profiles, who improve the scores, contributed the information. There are three use cases. You have companies using us for vendor risk management, who have a list of suppliers, investment targets, MA targets that they're working with. And then they use the scores, they use the analytics we provide, they plug them into different workflow systems. They may have like ServiceNow, Process Unity, Archer and others, and they make smarter, faster business decisions. If somebody has a bad score, uh, maybe they ask more questions. And if somebody has a good score, they fast track and accelerate the decision. The second use case is board level reporting. We have top companies using us to report to the boards of directors to, to showcase how they're doing compared to the rest of the industry. And then a third uh, is the cyber insurance underwriting Where top companies like Liberty Mutual, AXA Excel, Willis, Towers, Watson, and many others are using us our scores to make insurance decisions. Uh, we are the leader in the market. If you look at the Forrester Wave, if you look at the Gartner Peer Insights, there's a couple of other players in the market and world. We'll fighting a good fight. We're all trying to make a world a safer place and create the metrics and the KPIs for how CISOs and CIOs make better, more informed decisions. And, you know, I'm certainly a fan of the market and I'm a fan of the work that us and competitors are doing in the space. I think we're and trying, um, trying to revolutionize the industry. And this is a market that's going to be as big as credit ratings in the next
0: couple of years. Very, very interesting. I it, and I think when you th- when you go back into the history of cybersecurity risk ratings, the two companies that kind of came out at the same time, generally speaking, are BitSight and Security Scorecard. And when you when you entered the market, there's always been a little bit of like a it's an, it it's a hot button for 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 companies and it's a hot button for CISOs and for partners in terms of the actual output that comes out of a security scorecard platform. And my my perception on this, and I'd love to hear yours, it has always been the truth hurts for sometimes for for companies and for CISOs when they're when they're seeing that an open source-based assessment delivers such accurate results to give them an idea of what their security posture looks like. And I think that from the very beginning to now. There, I mean, the, the technology has advanced, the speed has advanced, the scale and breadth has advanced. And I think, as you just pointed out, the use cases have certainly evolved substantially and have become far more important than just a, you know, a vulnerability report. No,
1: so nobody likes being rated, right? Like, because if I come to you and say, I developed the most sophisticated algorithm and you know your kids are like five out of 10, you're not going to invite me home for dinner. <laughs> doesn't matter if my <laughs> algorithm is correct or not. Um, so the same with cybersecurity ratings. So the important part is that it has to be not a score, but a journey. It has to be a path from where you are today to how do you get to an A. And so within security scorecard, from the very beginning, we adopted an approach that any company in the world could for free, without paying anything, get access to their profile, to their scorecard, And we tell them exactly the set of steps that they need to take to go from their score to an A and improve the resilience. And so when you position it that way and tell to people, here's your score, we're going to tell you exactly how to improve your cyber hygiene, cyber resilience, and here are the steps. You don't need to pay anything for it. Then then the companies are much more receptive. The companies are much happier. And um, you know, we see in Uh, every paying customer invite dozens of other companies into the platform. So the network effect is working, uh, companies are becoming safer. And so as long as you position it as a journey, I think companies are much more receptive. You know, unfortunately, not everybody in a security rating space approached it the same way. You know, there were some players in the market who would give scores. They would not share transparently what the algorithms are, what the accuracy rates are. And then when people would ask about how to improve a score, they would actually say, "You have to pay me money, and I have to charge you for it." And right. that created a lot of negative perception in the space. We never did that. We were always transparent with our accuracy, with our algorithm, and we charge nothing uh, to get access to a score and to improve it. And so uh, that's why we're winning quite a bit of a market because of our approach. Um, and that I think is really
0: the future. Really interesting perspective, Alex. Where, where do you see the? Where do you see the? Uh... The the enterprise value come in for some of the some of your larger customers because you obviously are you know you're you're well versed and and have a, a, a massive install base. I think I think you said about fourteen to fifteen hundred cu- uh, customers. Yep. Where do you see that Where do you see that enterprise value come in when you have large deployments at large financial institutions and large healthcare companies and and perhaps probably even Uh, government organizations as well too.
1: Yeah, so we have banks, we have government institutions who are paying us millions of dollars a year and monitoring thousands and thousands of other companies. The value for them is very simple. Ultimately, it's all about saving time and accelerating the business decision. With a click of a button, you can load up thousands of companies into our portfolio and security scorecard, and you can configure workflow automation where, for example if a score of a company drops below a threshold or you have a ransomware outbreak, in one of those companies, you can trigger an alert or you can trigger an API call um, or a Slack message. And they find a lot of value in being able to automate and save time on manual processes and to do it more effectively and quickly so that they can spend their time focusing on more interesting things. And so it's ultimately all about the speed to business decision an acceleration of the time to value.
0: And it's interesting because it really pulls together the business value, not just, this, not just the cybersecurity value of what you provide of the data and of the, the ultimate output and the reporting that you're able to deliver to customers. It pulls the business to the table in a way that other technologies in the cyber world cannot do. Yep, that is absolutely correct. Interesting. Where do you see, I mean, you, you invest in a lot of different, you know, in a lot of different businesses as well for, from, from your own personal portfolio. Where are you seeing the really cool stuff around like the surge in innovation, around automation, AI, cloud technologies? What, what else out there is, is really interesting to you? So there are
1: several trends uh, happening in a cybersecurity market. Attackers are getting access to more sophisticated cyber weaponry. With a click of a mouse, you can launch a denial of service attack or order ransomware as a service. And companies are focused on the wrong things. They lack visibility into the environment. They don't understand the attack surface. They don't understand the asset inventory. And they have all these disparate tools uh, that don't talk to each other. So I believe that there's going to be a number of innovation in a security market around better automation, better integration. So robotic process automation and SOAR have, uh, have a lot to do in a cybersecurity market. There's a proliferation of IoT. Every single device you connect at your house now talks to the internet from your baby monitor to a refrigerator. So I think the focus on IoT is only going to continue to rise. And finally, uh, privacy is not going away. So I think that there's much more to see in a privacy arena. So I would say, SOAR and uh, automation, IoT, and uh, privacy would be the three areas which I think have uh, a lot of interesting developments ahead for them
0: in a cybersecurity space. Sure, and 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 actually, you're a you're an investor in Cyware, my company. Um, give me an idea of kind of like what what led you what was interesting to you in terms of the differentiation or what was cyware doing that was different from everybody else that led you to say all right yeah this is i can get behind this company and this is this is going to go somewhere
1: yeah so um i'm a big fan of what cyware is doing uh for a couple of reasons so there are several aspects number one the team focus on the customer needs and an innovative approach so the team is an incredible team. You have Anush Goyal as a co-founder who's been in a cybersecurity space for many years. So he has a deep sense of empathy towards what it takes to build an amazing, incredible company because you understand what the customers are asking for. That's kind of reason number one. Uh, reason number two is it's a real problem that you guys are addressing. There's too many threat intelligence companies out there. CISOs and CIOs are inundated with threat intelligence. You don't need more data. You need less, but more actionable data that is integrated into the rest of the uh, uh, infrastructure. And Cyware really is the only company in the market right now that is building the fusion centers, which allow very quick, efficient automation of threat intelligence. And that means that now you transform the raw unstructured threat intelligence, and you stay a ahead of a threat by making it actionable, by making it talk to different systems. So when I met the team, understood the passion um, that they bring to the table and the deep institutional knowledge, because they experienced it from being security practitioners in a top institutions, um, that was a no brainer to me uh, that this company is gonna be incredibly successful and is going to dominate the market. Um, and so that's why I'm very proud to be an investor and to be associated with the work that you, Tom, and Anuj are doing at Cyware in building a company.
0: It's a, it's a clear winner. Yeah, thank, thank you for, for that, by the way. I mean, I think it's also interesting when, when you've got experience, like I, when I look at everybody around the table at Cyware, too, there's, there's, a, there's a broad cross-section of folks that have practitioner-level experience. And I think that that's meaningful in building a company today because you've got the opportunity to be able to really understand those problems to your point, having empathy for what the customer is going through, but also looking at it through the lens of, well, it's it's not just about adding more data feeds. It's not just about having more data, but it's but it's getting ahead and, and trying to really put your organization uh, like in the custom, from the customer standpoint in a more of a proactive cybersecurity posture where you're getting ahead of things rather than being hit with things and just consistently playing catch up and you're, you know, you kind of, you're just living life in a, in a reactionary mode. Cybersecurity is kind of changing that way, isn't it? Like it's like, it's going down a much more intelligence and, and, and data backed route that's only getting faster and maybe even starting to catch up with some of the things that, with some of the techniques that attackers are applying? Yeah, so for
1: too long, companies uh, have invested into reactive security solutions um, like a firewall or an IDS, where you sit and wait to be attacked. And when you attack, then the alarm bells start ringing. Right. Um, reactive only stops maybe under 2% of our threats. So people are spending over 80% of a budget on ineffective technologies that don't even stop the threats. We need to shift our thinking and we need to start being proactive, where we anticipate that the attacker is going to break into your infrastructure sooner or later. And then the question is, how do you stay ahead of it? How do you design your infrastructure to be as resilient, as recoverable as it could be? And you do it by doubling down on proactive solutions. Examples of proactive solutions where you're not being reactive include cyber fusion with automation, deception technologies, security rating technologies, those type of things where you're not just sitting and waiting, but you're proactively managing your attack surface, your threat intelligence, your outside-in posture, and you're trying to make it harder for the attackers to break
0: in. I couldn't agree more. Very very interesting in terms of and, and I think that what you pointed out too is interesting too, Alex. Like when you think about the pandemic and what that's brought upon us as an industry, the cybersecurity industry has has not, I would say, from a business standpoint, hasn't suffered. Like there's been there's been more there's been more interest and more criticality applied to cybersecurity in the past probably 18 months than I think ever. Right. And it doesn't take just like that single breach anymore for people to wake up. It takes almost like a, a movement of breaches that are hitting faster, that are more critical, that are shutting down supply chains, that are, that are shutting down critical infrastructure and that are threatening things like even our food supply. This is I think this is where this is where we're at as a as an industry or as a market. And like the challenges keep seemingly growing for this market and i think innovation and i I think you would agree but i'd love your thoughts on this innovation is is at the heart of this industry um and i think people for the longest time have you know pundits have always said you know we're six to nine months behind the attackers i don't really think that's the case anymore we just have to continue to strive to get to get better and to really persevere in this market
1: no absolutely and you know the Innovation piece is interesting because a lot of the time, really great innovative ideas, they're not obvious to you because if they were obvious, you would have done it a long time ago. So a lot of the time, great innovative ideas look very similar to bad ideas. And so and you don't know which one is which until you try it. So you really need to create the culture in a security teams, in a technology teams, the culture of trying things, being okay to fail, learn from it and fast forward. I remember Jim Routh, when he used to be a CISO of Vietnam. he used to say that if you want to mitigate risk, you got to be willing to take risk. So companies too often invest into solutions from only big established companies who've been around for dozens of years. That's not called taking a risk. As you build your program, you have to buy both from established players and do what everybody does firewalls antiviruses etc but you also have to make sure that you're taking risks and you're being proactive and you're trying new solutions that uh, you might not be thinking of like for example uh, being proactive about
0: fusion and soar and that type of stuff sure really cool and and, and at cyware we're partnering with security scorecard so Um, I think you guys have been really innovative with the things that you've been doing to try to enable customers and then certainly enable partners. For example, your marketplace offering is really cool when you're assessing an organization and you're starting to see the different categories of cyber vulnerabilities like crypto, like patching, software patching it's interesting because you're then able to take that and sort of offer other solutions right there on the spot for your customer and for partners' customers to be able to kind of really kind of have that force multiplier that network effect within the ecosystem um, where where a customer or a partner's customer might not ordinarily think about, oh, hey, I, I know this solution that can help with this when you're starting to uncover those vulnerabilities.
1: No, absolutely. So we launched the marketplace on top of a network of our rated companies because we want to really create an ecosystem of best partners, which could add a lot of value to our customer base, right? And so uh, we're privileged to be partnering with Cyware uh, on a marketplace front because you guys deliver unique, interesting insights that are not available anywhere else. And similarly, the data and the ratings that we deliver could be very useful uh, to the users of your cyberfusion center as well
0: super cool stuff alex what have what have i not asked you that 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 you want to talk about have, have we i know we've covered a lot of ground but would love to open it up if there's anything else that you have that i haven't asked that you want to address before we head to our classic rapid fire round
1: i think we covered quite a bit tom so let's go into
0: the rapid fire all right let's hit it all right So this is the uh, this is our shtick for this podcast, Alex. So we always go into a rapid fire round of questions, which are kind of random and they're just you know they're they're just questions, and we always have fun with it. So let's go back to the office. Love it or hate it? I love it personally. I mean, we make it flexible for people. We
1: don't force anyone to come. They can come if they want to. But I can't wait to start seeing people over coffee again. I think all of us are tired of sitting in front of computers at home
0: amen and and trying to navigate the the landmines at home because it's you know at the end of the day it's your home and it's there's all kinds of stuff going on particularly if you have a you know a spouse at home who's also working out of the house and kids who may or may not be in school yeah i can't wait to go back into the office it's going to be great yep Cybersecurity skills shortage real or hyperbole? It's very real.
1: Um, There's not enough amazing people with uh, cybersecurity skills. There's so many open jobs. And so we need to get better at training, educating people, and helping people transition into IT security who may dream of it, uh, but they don't have the training materials and resources to
0: do it. So the cyber skills shortage is very real. Couldn't agree more. It, and, it, and it comes down to, you know, I mean, we we think about where, you know, there's a lot, I know there's a lot of cybersecurity programs that are coming up for cyber development, cyber engineering. Um, but even on the business side too, we see it, there's definitely a shortage of, um, you know, in, in terms of a, the candidate pool uh, to get folks with experience that are just great people and great employees too. So totally agree with that. All right, and just I'm only asking this because I know you're a New Yorker, but I also know that you I also happen to know that you do frequent Cape Cod as well too. So, better vacation spot, the Hamptons or the Cape?
1: Well, look, it's obviously completely subjective, but Cape Cod way down. (laughs) I love the Cape. We go there, we go there with kids every summer. Um,
0: So, uh, Cape Cape Cod it is for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you too. And, I, and I'm actually not from Massachusetts either. So I have no skin in the game, but I live fairly close to the Cape. And uh, I grew up going to the Cape as well too as a kid. So Cape Cod for me too. And if you're coming down this summer, I, I'm going to hold you to a beer. Would love to get a beer with you. Excellent. All right. We've got a couple more. The New York Knicks out of the playoffs. Is it a building block, Alex, or are they one and done? Are they going back to you know being the Knicks again? I think they're
1: going back to being the Knicks again. I I've been very encouraged. Uh, I think that they're assembling the right team, the right kind of trainers. Uh, so I'm an optimist there. I think I think they're back. I think I think it's a building block.
0: Okay. Yep. I would I would agree too. They've got a great coach and Tom Thibodeau and and they've got a couple of ball stars like Julius Randle, RJ Barrett. I'm a am I'm a, even though I'm a I live in Boston, I'm a Boston fan, but I was rooting for the Knicks because they just haven't been able to do much over the past, maybe 15 years. So uh, this is, I thought, I thought it was great for the NBA. Um, All right. We're going into our final question. Okay. A better Russian villain, Ivan Drago from Rocky or Nikolai Volkov from the eighties WWF.
1: So I'm a big fan of Rocky. So it's it's a great uh, it's a great movie, one of my favorites. So I'm gonna go with Drago.
0: Okay, I you know he's he is a great villain, um, and uh, and he was played by actor Dolph Lundgren. Actually, we were looking him up on Cameo the other day. We were gonna do something with him, but I'm gonna go with Nikolai Volkov. And only the only reason I'd say that is, I used to be into the WWF way back in the day as a kid. We'd watch Nikolai Volkov and his tag team partner was the Iron Sheik. So they'd come in. You'd have one guy from Russia, one guy from Iran, and they'd come in and both sing their national anthems before they'd start. They just draw all the booze from the American audience every time. So it was highly entertaining. And I'll, uh, I'll send you a YouTube clip of uh, I would love of to see it. It's pretty funny stuff. All right, man. Well, Alex, thank you very much for the time today. This was, as I expected, very entertaining, very informational. Thank you very much for spending the time with us today on the Cybercast.
1: Thank you very much, Tom. Talk soon.
0: All right, Alex. Bye-bye.